Hello everyone, happy Monday, happy first day of summer. I am ready to make this week a good one and we're going to kick your week off with a treat for you today. We are interviewing Jean Becker, George H.W. Bush's chief of staff for a quarter century, who has written a beautiful book about him and their years together called The Man I Knew, The Amazing Story of George H.W. Bush's Post-Presidency. Now, Gene came into 41's life in his post-presidency years, but prior to that, he had served our country in numerous ways, as a pilot in World War II, which we speak about in our interview today, as a congressman, an ambassador to the United Nations, chairman of the Republican National Committee, head of the U.S. Liaison Office in China, director of the CIA, and of course, vice president for eight years under Ronald Reagan and president of the United States himself from 1989 to 1993. The timing for this episode is fitting for a couple of reasons. His birthday was on June 12th. He would have been 97 this year. And Father's Day was yesterday. And of course, he was a father of six, including a U.S. president, George W. Bush. So prior to our interview, Jean and I had already gotten to know one another a bit when I interviewed her for a People magazine article I wrote about her, which we will link to in the show notes. After we wrapped recording this episode, Jean said that felt like we were just two friends sitting in a bar talking over drinks. That's exactly how I felt, too. Take a listen to this conversation about an extraordinary American hero, George H.W. Bush. One of the very best books I've read lately is The Man I Knew, The Amazing Story of George H.W. Bush's Post-Presidency by the one and only Gene Becker, who was 41's chief of staff for 25 years. Jean, this is the backstory. Jean was a reporter for USA Today when she met Barbara Bush during the 1988 presidential campaign. She then went on to work as a deputy press secretary for Mrs. Bush in the East Wing of the White House after President Bush was elected to office. And then after he was not reelected in 1992, moved to Houston with Mrs. Bush to work on her memoirs. So Jean met President Bush, this is so great, while you can't make this up, working from a card table in the kitchen of the Bush's Houston home. She was asked to come on as his chief of staff on a six-month interim basis in 1994, and she never left. She was with him until the day he died in 2018. This book is the story of the next quarter century until President Bush left us. And Jean, welcome to I'd Rather Be Reading. I am so happy to connect with you today. Rachel, I am delighted and honored to be here. You've been terrific already this week. So thanks for having me on. Oh, you're so welcome. So what Jean is referring to is we collaborated. I wrote an article and interviewed her for People Magazine. And so I was going to call that out later, but listeners, go check it out. We'll make sure to link that article in the show notes. Um, That'll give you even more context to the book than this interview will. Some of the questions, Jean, by the way, are going to be the same, but some of them will be a little bit of a shakeup. But, you know, this one is actually one I asked you for the People article. I'll ask you it again because your answer was so beautiful. We all know George H.W. Bush, the president, but who was George H.W. Bush, the man? 
Well, I, of course, love you for asking that question. I, I do think when he left the White House, the American people didn't fully understand the man. They saw the statesman, the diplomat, the ambassador, the president, the vice president, but he, he is bigger than life. He had a huge heart. He had one of the best sense of humor I ever knew. He absolutely was fall down funny. He loved a good joke. He loved to pull pranks on people. And, and back to his big heart, he truly had what I would call a servant's heart. I don't think he ever quit giving back or thinking about giving back, thinking how he could make a difference until the day he died. So that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to see sort of the man he was when he wasn't sitting in the Oval Office, when he wasn't on camera, but just the best dad, the best friend, the best mentor, and certainly the best boss I ever had. With all due respect to all my other bosses who are out there, you didn't even come close to George Herbert Walker Bush. So he doesn't get reelected in 1992, which was a shock. That was not what he was expecting. He was devastated after that loss. So suddenly he's thrown into a post-presidency when he had hoped to have the presidency for four more years. There's no blueprint, as you well know, to a post-presidency, no handbook that a president is given as they're leaving office. So what was it like to help shape those post-presidency years and how does that planning process even go? Because the world is your oyster. You have so many options of what you can do that how do you how do you plan that? Well, I think it's even more complicated for presidents who lose their bid for reelection. If you're Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, you you know that your time is coming. And so you can start thinking ahead about what your post-presidency might look like. But if you're Jimmy Carter or George Herbert Walker Bush or Donald Trump, you're, suddenly you're no longer the leader of the free world. As I talk about in the book, you wake up one morning and you're the leader of the free world. You live in the White House. You have a private plane called Air Force One. You have a large devoted staff, both in the office and in the house. And then you get on Air Force One for the last time, you fly home, you have no title, no staff, no plane, no house. And, and again, if you lose the election, you really don't even have a plan. So I think President Bush was really smart. What, what he did, well, I know he was really smart. He took his time, he needed to lick his wounds. He was very sad. He felt he had let down a lot of people, his family, his team. Um, he felt like he'd left a job unfinished. So he just needed to process all of that. So for the, almost the entire first year, Rachel, he was pretty quiet and kept a lot of his thoughts to himself and just started to think through. I teased him much later, many years later. I said, you sort of needed to figure out what you wanted to be when you grew up. <laughs> you know, we all go through periods in life where you have to reinvent yourself. And for this was a time he needed to reinvent himself. And after a few months, and about the time I became his chief of staff, I think he woke up one morning and literally thought to himself, okay, let's go, I'm ready, I'm back. 
And the next 25 years was just a wild roller coaster ride. And the decision he made, basically, he wanted to make a difference. He wanted to find two or three causes, projects that made, made, meant a great deal to him. And he wanted to spend his time helping those organizations, those causes raise money, get the word out, make a difference. That included cancer for both he and Mrs. Bush, their daughter Robin had died of leukemia at age three. They absolutely threw themselves into helping raise money for cancer research, cancer information campaigns. They actually founded a national organization called Sea Change that was all about cancer. He stayed very active in Points of Light, his foundation that encourages volunteerism, that reminds all Americans that we all have something to give. And then a few years down the road, he suddenly became best friends with someone named William Jefferson Clinton. And then he spent the rest of his presidency, he and Bill Clinton, the odd couple, as Mrs. Bush called them, uh, raising money for disaster relief in this country. And it was amazing. The two of them raised tens of millions of dollars to help people whose lives had been turned upside down by a natural disaster. Your book just goes into that relationship so beautifully, even um, remarking that Mrs. Bush called, um, you know, 41, the father that Bill Clinton never had, because Bill Clinton's father, for listeners that may not know, his biological father died, I believe it was in a car accident, three months before his birth, and so he That's never right. knew him. Never and, knew him. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so so President Bush, 41, kind of became the father that he never had, and, and the book outlines that beautifully. So in the book, you also say that the president was notorious for coming in your office and saying, Gene, I have an idea. And that could be as simple as let's go here for lunch, or it could be as complicated as a parachute jump. And so what was the biggest surprise that you ever had while working with 41? That's a great question. There were so many of them. I truly, he, he had so many ideas. And I think probably to be president of the United States, you have to be a big thinker, probably. And he just was such a big thinker. But I, I don't know. The, I Probably the biggest surprise, because it was one of the hardest things as chief of staff I had to do logistically, was when he told me he wanted to go back to Chichijima, where he was shot down during World War II. And I remember after he left my office, the first thing I did was to Google Chichijima to see where the heck it was. I knew it was in the <laughs> South Pacific. I mean, I knew, I knew kind of where it was, but it's this tiny volcanic island uh, in the South Pacific and it's impossible to get to. The only way to get there is by a 33 hour boat ride from Tokyo. 33 so hour boat 33 ride. hours. We did not take that boat. Oh, wow. um, what is interesting to me is at the end of the day, the Japanese government, the Japanese Navy is the one who got him to Chichijima. They helicoptered him in. And as President Bush said, talk about coming full circle. 
the, the government that shot me down while I was bombing them is the one who brought me back to that spot. Wow, that's so That powerful. was probably the most shocking thing he said to me because it just set off this sequence of events that were complicated, but at the end of the day, an incredible, incredible journey. Probably it was the most interesting journey that I had with him. So I maybe I've had too much therapy, Jean, but I've, I'm sitting here thinking about this. So obviously for listeners that don't know, and you can provide better context than I can on this, but during World War II, as you just said, his plane, he was in the Navy, correct? Right, he was a Navy pilot flying off air, an aircraft carrier. Yes, and his plane was shot down at Chichijima, and he survived, obviously. Um, he was the was he the lone survivor of that mission? I feel like he was. He was, and this is yes, he was, and that is why he wanted to go back. He had two crew members, uh -huh. his rescue man and his navigator. He was the pilot, and President Bush's squadron that day was tasked with bombing Chichijima, which contained was home to a very strategic radio tower and radio transmission station used by the Japanese to communicate with all their islands and all their ships in the Pacific. It was key. And so President Bush and his squadron went to bomb, um, try to get rid of that radio tower. And he, uh, his plane was hit with anti-aircraft um, gunfire and he went ahead and dropped his payload over the radio tower uh -huh. and then he turned his plane back out to sea and informed his crew members, we need to get out. And he opened the hatch and he parachuted out and the other two didn't make it. The, there were reports that one of them did parachute, but his, he was never found and the other one didn't make it out of the plane. And so they don't really know what happened to them, but that's President what I was going to say is maybe I've had too much therapy, but you, so of course, later in life, Bush becomes notorious for wanting to do parachute jumps and he did it many, many times <laughs> and which, you know, I mean, he was not young when he started parachute jumping. And so I yeah. always have wondered, and I'm, this is kind of more of a rhetorical question, but maybe you do have insight. I always wondered if he was so drawn to skydiving and parachute jumping, because this time that was, that was reliving one of the, that has to be one of the biggest traumas of his life, but on his own terms now, you know, um, he like, he was, he was in control of the jump as opposed to being, having your plane shot down. Down and not being, you know, I don't even know if I'm making sense, but no, do you have any context on that? Yes. It was, again, another full right. circle moment. You're absolutely right. The, the parachuting came first and what he said to me the day that he announced to me he wanted to start jumping out of airplanes. And again, I'm sort of, okay, well, are we just going to show up at some skydiving club? And I said, how are we going to do this? And we got it all figured out. He jumped with the Golden Knights, which is the U.S. Army's uh, parachute team. But he, what he said to me was, I've only parachuted once in my life. And it was traumatic. I, it, it, I didn't do a good, I didn't do it right. He actually hit his head really hard. As he was jumping out, he hit his, he hit his head hard and splashed down really hard. It was a dramatic experience. 
and he wanted a do-over. He literally wanted a do-over. The man was a perfectionist. And he said, I got to jump again and this time do it right. Well, he loved it so much. I think he jumped seven or eight more times, including on his 90th birthday, which we all tried to talk him out of. I actually called his oldest son, by that time, the former president of the United States. And I said, Mr. President, your dad wants to parachute on his 90th birthday. You've got to help stop this, stop it. <laughs> and, he, and he said to me, he says, well, Gene, what is your biggest fear? That he'll die? And I said, yes, yeah. I'm afraid. He was already very frail, Rachel. And, and he right. was gonna do what's called a tandem jump. He would be strapped to one of, to a retired army golden knight who had jumped with him a number of times. But, but President Bush 43 was right. He said, you know what? Let him do what he wants to do. Don't deny him this. And you know what, Gene, if it doesn't come out right, if what you fear happens, I think dad will think that's a glorious way to go. Yeah, well, you know, go ahead. Sorry. I just. Yeah, well, he obviously, he did survive the jump. Right. And, and 43 was right. He is. He said, just let him go. He's 90 years old. Let him do this. Don't well, as a him. casual observer of these multiple jumps, I keep thinking, okay, this man keeps getting older. Like, okay, I get it, right? Like you have a bucket list item you want to check, but by number seven or eight, now you're in your 90s. What are you doing, sir? But now, you know, again, I can see that that is, has to be such a way to heal that trauma for him. Um, you know, to, to, to make it on his terms this time, to do it right this time, as you said. So that's so fascinating. I, I, I love this, this man. I love this president. And so, you know, you're a chief of staff for 25 years. You run the day-to-day operations of his post-presidency. What, I know there's probably no such thing as a typical day in the life of George H.W. Bush, (laughs) but if there, if there, if there was, what is a day in the life of George H.W. Bush post-presidency like? Um, Well, if he were in town, he traveled a lot and I traveled with him just occasionally, honestly, I didn't get any work done when he was in the office. So I would only travel with him on the bigger, more complicated trips when I really needed. Like I went with him with Chichi Jima. I went with him when he and President Clinton went to South Asia after the tsunami. That was their first big disaster relief trip. But uh, for the most part, I stayed home because that's when I could actually get something done. When he, was in the, when he was in town, a typical day would be, he would show up in the office about 7 a.m., full of energy. He got up about five every morning. He would have had a pot of coffee. He would pot? Have read four, Not a cup, a pot? A pot of coffee. Wow, he he's wired, four, he's ready to he go. Would read, he would have read four newspapers and he comes bounding into the office I'm sort of nursing my first cup of coffee and I would try to get there by 6.45 every morning and he would come bounding in. He'd say, good morning, Gene. It's going to be a great day. And sometimes he would sit down and says, you know, and start out the day with, I have an idea, but oh my gosh, he was so funny. He would spend the mornings, we would spend the mornings, uh, he would go through his mail with his bad correspondence 
He would do a lot of mail in the morning with his secretary, Linda Pepsel. And he and I would go over all of our, I would have a big folder of invitations, you know, things that people wanted him to do. So we would go over our work. And then a lot of times we would go to lunch. Um, and so about a couple of times a week, Mrs. Bush would join us, which was great. And then I could go over some things together with them. And usually in the afternoon, he would go work out or... Uh, as he got older, he would go home and take a nap, but he, he loved coming to the office. He really, he would have a lot of visitors at the office. He was one of the highest energy persons I ever knew. He also, President Bush, is he defines the word extrovert. Yeah. He loves people. He loves being around people. And once in a while, Mrs. Bush would have a trip to go give a speech, to go do an event. It didn't happen very often. She liked to try to schedule her trips when he was already out of town. But once in a while, she would have to go somewhere and he was in town and I would just brace myself because he could not be alone. So we would go to movies, we would go to dinner, uh, I went to a lot of movies with him, which was funny. funny. Is that and movies with the two of them actually? It's very funny. Uh, do you remember the movie? This I went to this movie with both of them. It was called Primary Colors. That is a and hilarious it, movie to go to with them. Hilarious movie, <laughs> and it's sort of the fictionalized version. Oh yeah, of President Clinton's 1992 campaign. Uh huh. And all the names had been changed. But here's the funny thing. So we're sitting in the theater and we're watching the movie and they would lean over and very loudly would say to me, do you think that's James Carville? Who do you think that guy is? Is that James Carville? I mean, how amazing to be watching, like just be a casual moviegoer in Houston. And then you're watching Primary Colors with, with the Bushes. Can that you imagine? No, I actually and, can't. And then they, <laughs> they talked to me through that whole movie. And I kept like, shh, shh. But I know you would think about the other, you're right. You would think about the other people in the movie theater. The other movie that I remember taking him to, this was during the recount after the 2000 election. Uh-huh. And he was just a wreck. He was just a wreck over that. He was watching way too much cable news. He was on the internet looking stuff up. So one afternoon I said, you know what, sir? We're going to a movie right now. I'm getting you out of this office. So I don't, I don't sure if I know the name of this movie, but it was do- about a dog show. It was a very it was funny- a best in show. Best, the in, best show. in show. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Yep. We got I the best in show hysterical. That's amazing. Hysterical. And um, and it got he loved it. He absolutely loved the movie. Another movie I went just Mrs. Bush with. And then I won't tell any more movie stories. A couple of us go to a movie with her one Saturday afternoon, four weddings and a funeral. Oh, that's a great movie. And the opening she loved it, but the opening dialogue of the movie. I don't know if it's if it's the Hugh Grant character, but they wake up and they're really late for a wedding or a funeral. Uh-huh. And like the first five minutes is filled with the F word. And Mrs. Bush leaned over to me and she said, 
well, he didn't have to memorize a lot of dialogue. The whole, it's just one word he had to memorize. <laughs> that, oh man, you're making me want to watch all of these movies. All three of those movies are fantastic <laughs> movies, They're especially Prime. I cannot believe you went and saw Primary Colors with them in the theater. Yes. That is, yeah. that is that amazing. That was bizarre. That, that is amazing. Okay, so speaking of Mrs. Bush, obviously to know George is to know Barbara. The, oh my gosh, like that, the the story you tell in the book, about, I'm just going to let you tell the story about, so Mrs. Bush is at the end of her life in 2018. Um, President Bush is frail and is unable to walk unassisted up the stairs to her on the second floor of their home that the power's gone out and so the elevator is out of use so tell me that story about how he just had to get to her to hold her hand at the end of her life so it is the day she died and she died about six o'clock in the evening on a tuesday evening and you know both of the bushes rachel it was so hard to you know sometimes it's it's you know that someone is at the end for them, this period lasted for a couple of weeks. For Mrs. Bush, and then later in November for President Bush, there was at least a week where we knew he probably would die sometime that week. For Mrs. Bush, um, we we had known for two or three, at least two or three days, that she was very near the end. And the day she died, uh, the doctor came and said she will die before the day is out. So their power went out and she's on the second floor where their bedroom, she's at home in hospice. And he had been downstairs <clears throat> eating a little lunch and the power goes out and they tell him they haven't, they had, he was in a wheelchair and the Bushes had an elevator that had been put into their house and the secret service tell him, sir, we're so sorry, the power is out and we cannot get you to the second floor. And he asked them to carry him up the stairs. He says, I have to be there with her. You have got to take me upstairs. So God bless the secret service. They carried his wheelchair up first and then they came back and got him and lifted him out of his chair and carried him up two short flights of stairs so he could sit that afternoon with her. And he was holding her hand when she died. I mean, I like I I don't want to start crying on this podcast, but like reading it, you tell it beautifully. Hearing it is beautiful too. It's just love stories like that are just so rare anymore. And just he there was nothing. I mean, he would have done anything to get to her bedside. He would have, you done know? He would have crawled up that's those what steps. I'm saying. And, yeah. There's the nothing story. that could have kept nothing. him from her. Oh my gosh. So, so Go ahead. Well, I was just going to tell the story that I know you remember because we talked about it for your people piece uh -huh. about a week earlier. They were, he was in the hospital. Oh, okay. This one's going to make you cry too, Jean. <laughs> I'm going to make you cry. Yes. You know, they were in love with each other. They were married for 73 years and there was still sort of this teenage quality to how they, the way they would look at each other. They were just, it's just one of the greatest love stories ever. But anyway, she is near, uh, she's about a week away from dying, but she'd actually been dismissed from the hospital. He was in the hospital 
And then we get word that she's on her way back. She had taken a turn for the worse and she's coming back by ambulance. And I'm at the hospital with him and I tell him that she's on her way back. And they have adjoining rooms at Methodist, the great Houston's Methodist Hospital. And after she gets settled back in, he wants to go in and be with her. And she was not in a coma, but Rachel, she was pretty out of it. She, she was in a deep sleep. She was far away. And I sort of look at President Bush and he just looked awful. And he had been in the hospital for a week. His hair is standing straight up. He has an, he has an oxygen mask. He has on a hospital gown. He looked like any of us would after being in the hospital for a week. But they get him in his wheelchair, the healthcare people get him in his wheelchair and they wheel him in. It really didn't matter that he was sort of scary looking because Mrs. Bush was pretty out of it. So he just sat there holding her hand very quietly, talking to her a little bit, but just sitting there holding her hand. And suddenly she opens her eyes and she looks at him and she says, my God, George, you are devastatingly good looking. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm laughing. So I don't start like there are tears welling in my eyes. The nurses and I, it's such a love story. The nurses and I, we laughed and we cried and President Bush caught my eye and he sort of shrugged. I love this part. I know. He sort of looked at me and shrugged and the look on his face said, well, it is what it is. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I immediately I emailed it. the five kids, their five children, and I said, I just want to share this story of what just happened in the hospital. And Jeb Bush was one of his mom's eulogists, and he included that story in his eulogy and, as and the perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember that getting coverage at the time. And um Gosh, it's just so many, so many incredible anecdotes in this book. Listeners, you've got to pick up a copy. And one of my favorite anecdotes is um, that at the end of his life, President Bush would have family and staff and sometimes even authors of some of his favorite books come and read to him at his bedside, which, you know, of course, as a reader who hosts a reading podcast, I just, my heart swells at that thought. So what were some of his favorite books? Do you remember? But he, he consumed just about everything, fiction, nonfiction. I have one really funny story I would love to tell you. Yeah. Uh, so we, family, the family read to him a lot in Kennebunkport. Here in Houston, his son, Neil, who lives right across the street, Neil would come read to him every single night. Neil would come and read to his parents every single evening after dinner, which was so, so sweet, so sweet. And in Kennebunkport, there was always family around, but once in a while, the staff would read to him if the family wasn't there, or, you know, were out and about. Um, but one of the things he loved is sometimes authors, authors who'd written books about him or fiction writers. A great example would be Brad Meltzer. Brad Meltzer came and read to him from a book, he, a, a nonfiction piece about George Washington. And the funny thing is, is President Bush would always have his eyes closed. Uh, he closed his eyes a lot in the last year. I think it was just hard for them to keep them open. And I would always tell readers, he's not asleep. Don't be fooled by that. Well, Brad kept trying to quit reading because he thought President Bush had fallen asleep. And President Bush would say, no, keep going. I'm still here. Keep going. 
But the funny story, John Meacham wrote the definitive biography of President Bush called Destiny and Power. So good. Listeners, if you, after you read The Man I Knew, go grab Destiny and Power. So great. Yeah, it's a great, he did an amazing job. And this probably would have been the summer of 2017. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the summer of 2017. So John came early in the summer and read a couple chapters of Destiny and Power to them. And he came down to the office and he said, okay, that was amazing to be able to read to him the part of the book that I wrote about him. Wow. He said, I really would love to read the final chapter to him. When you get close to, and the, John read the parts in, from the beginning. He said, when he gets to the end of the book, would you please let me know? And if at all possible, I'm gonna jump on a plane and come back because I would love to do the last chapter of the book. I said, of course. So later that summer, and it was August, I'm pretty sure, Mrs. Bush uh, became very ill. She was actually uh, diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And she goes to the hospital by ambulance and she stabilized. This was a year before she died. They both died in 2018. This is the summer of 2017. But when she came home from the hospital, I her, her aide, a wonderful young woman named Catherine, Catherine Branch, Catherine and I went and sat down with her and I felt bad about this. I said, Mrs. Bush, we really need to finish your funeral. There were some unanswered questions I had for her. She really, she had not picked her eulogist. We really hadn't, there were some important things we needed to talk about. Well, she was thrilled. She's like, yes, I wanna talk about this, wonderful idea. So we spent an hour or so going through her funeral plans and she wanted her eulogist to be her one of her best friends, Susan Baker, the wife of Secretary James Baker. Right. Um, she wanted Jeb to represent the family and she wanted John Meacham, which surprised me a little bit. Uh, but she said, I feel like John knows me, by this time, John knows me about as well as anyone. So she asked me to ask all of them on her behalf. So I did, and they were all very touched. Of course, very my touched. gosh. And uh, so I don't know, Rachel, maybe a couple weeks later, President Bush's personal aide, Evan Sisley, came to me and he said, he'd been reading a lot to President Bush from Destiny and Power. And he said, John Meacham needs to get up here because we're almost done. If he wants to read the last chapter, he needs to come now. Well, it's one of those days I was really busy. I'm multitasking. So I send John an email and in the subject line, I just type, the end is near. That's all I oh, put. Oh gosh, this is in the book too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just go on working. Well, the phone rings and it's John and he could barely speak. He said, oh my God. He said, you're kidding me. He said, I didn't, he says, I had no idea that it was, that the end was near. You didn't tell me that. And I said, of well, course, thinking I, that you're saying that the president is, is about to pass no, away. No, that Mrs. Bush. Oh, Mrs. Excuse, Bush me, excuse me, excuse yeah, me, Mrs. Bush. Bush got ready to die. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I just told you the end is near. I said, you know, Evan, Evan and the family have been reading to him almost every day, John. And, and John says, 
what the hell are you talking about? He says, well, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, Mrs. Bush isn't on her deathbed. I said, no, you're almost done with destiny and power. And John, John Meacham has never, ever let me forget that. But it is pretty I, I bet not. I bet you heard the biggest exhale of your entire life when you told him that it was about destiny and power, not about destiny and power. But that, here, is, that is a classic story. One okay, more thing so, about yeah, yeah, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, one more. I keep. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. And listeners, there's more where this came from in the book, by the way. Anecdotes uh, yeah, on anecdotes book. on anecdotes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one, this is sort of, this is not in the book. So one of, of uh, President Bush's favorite readers was one of my best friends, a man named George Dvorsky, who was a Broadway actor, singer, and the Bushes were huge fans of George. They actually were friends with him before I was. And they've seen him in a lot of productions, Sound of Music, Brigadoon, they loved, everything George did that they could go to, they would go to. Well, George would come visit me in the summertime, and George was one of the people who would read to him a lot. And President Bush would say to me a lot, he said, don't tell the others, but George is my favorite reader. <laughs> well, that's because he was an actor, and I could hear George reading to him in the other room, and George would, you know, he would turn every book into a one-act play. It was oh hilarious. So, so I write the book, and it's time to record the audiobook. And the audiobook folks, they we I did not do my part. They they really wanted to hire a professional book reader, and I was so fine with that. And they wanted me to audition like three women. They would send me tapes, and they said, and as you know, Rachel, there's a lot of letters and memos from President Bush uh-huh, in the book. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they wanted to hire an actor to play him to you read. Hire George. Book. George is who I suggested that they hire him. They said, well, he'll have to audition. Wow. And the head of audiobooks of the Shets audiobooks emailed me and said, Oh yeah, George got George he got the part. Wow. It is so emotional for George that he got to do this. He just it just means everything to him. Oh and my gosh, that's so sentimental. It. it is it's very, it's very sentimental. Okay, well, that actually is a perfect segue into my last question for you, because I'm sure that President Bush would absolutely love that detail about George being him, playing him in the audio book. But I wanted to ask you, if President Bush could sit down and read this book, what do you think his reaction would be? (laughs) Oh, gosh, I hope and think he would love it. I think he would I think he, I didn't tell any, as I put in the author's note, if you think this is going to be a tell-all, you're about ready to be very disappointed. I was very careful not to tell any secrets, not to reveal anything that I felt he had said to me confidentially, or maybe confidential conversations I heard. So I think he would, I think he would love all the stories, but Rachel, I think he would say, in fact, I can hear him saying it right now. Jean, why didn't you tell the story about that time? You forgot this story. I know there are stories I forgot. I'm already thinking of them. I know. We talked earlier this week about how you, and I'm going to ask you to tell this quote um, as we as we close because I already have said to you, well, you need to do a volume two because there's just so many stories 
that you couldn't even fit them all in this book, which is roughly three or 400 pages. I and so fit them all in. Right. And so you're just going to need to do a part two. But as we close, um, first of all, listeners, you've got to get a copy of this book, The Man I Knew. It's out now. Um, please get this. It, it is truly one of the best books I've read recently. But I want you to close by telling um, that Hugh Sidey quote that didn't make it to the book about, do you know what I'm talking about? about thank you for asking that because it's one of the yeah. things there's like three or four things i have thought of i'm like why didn't i put this in the book so Hugh Sidey covered the white house and the presidency for years for time magazine and he was considered in his time the absolute number one authority on the presidency in the united states yeah, he's a legend he's a legend he's a legend and he covered every president from eisenhower through president clinton and he and President Bush became big friends. They they were uh, they wrote each other long letters. They were pen pals, mm -hmm. and that's another whole book that needs to be done. Uh, but at one one time, I was having lunch or a cup of coffee with Mr. Sidey, just a wonderful man, and he said to me, he says, "Gene, George Bush will probably forever be the best man." to ever occupy that office. Mm -hmm. I know he's the best man up until this time. And he says, I'm not saying he's the best, he was the best president, but he was the best man to ever sit in that office. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of mad at him that he died before President Bush, because I wanted him to say that. I was thinking of Hugh Sidey when President Bush died and I thought I need him on CNN saying that. And I had my big chance to put it in the book and I didn't. So thank you for asking that question. Yeah, it's so a beautiful story because, you know, I just love how he says maybe he's not the best president and, and, and you know, and maybe that doesn't even matter so much. Right. But that right. he is the best man with the best character and the best heart, um, truly a wonderful person that you got to know for a quarter century, how lucky you are and how lucky we are that we get to read the stories of that time in this book. Jean, thank you so much for being here today. You are an absolute delight and the book is phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. This book is an absolute must read. So what are you reading and why do you love it? I hope you're reading some of the books we've talked about on the show. But if you are reading something other than those books, and if you're reading those books, just if you're reading anything, email me at hello, I'd rather be reading at gmail.com and let me know. We might even feature your email on air. We'll be back on Thursday with our next batch of Thursday three. And in the meantime, please take a moment to subscribe, rate and review the show. It really does help others find what we're doing here and build our I'd rather be reading community. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll chat on Thursday.